Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I am joined by James Rundle. Hello. So this week uh, we had Waters USA and James and I were going to hit on some of the key topics that we heard um, while at the event. But uh, before we get to that, we have a guest today in just a little bit. James, what do we got? Uh, yes, we are happy to have Raymond Zenkic uh, joining us for the podcast. He's the President and Chief Operating Officer of Blockery, um, one of the only firms that are really offering proper insurance products within sort of the crypto trading space. Okay. Um, why should an audience, like for somebody listening that's interested in blockchain but doesn't quite understand the insurance aspect, yeah. why should they pay attention to this? Oh, we go, I mean, it's pretty in-depth stuff. Uh, we go into a lot of detail about how you insure a product that's you know as volatile as Bitcoin, where the price can go from... $18,000 at the end of last year to around $3,000 now. Um, we talk about some of the um, emerging uh, market infrastructure around the area and how it's evolving and maturing. And also, I guess, just the challenges of, um, of risk assessment and developing products like this. Like, very few people actually offer genuine insurance and, and block really one of the first guys, and they have a pretty impressive uh, board of advisors. So, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. Okay, very good. Very good. And so, yeah, that'll be in just a little bit. Um, we're also looking for new guests in the new year here coming up. We'll be off the last two weeks of the year mm-hmm. this year. Um, but we have actually some pretty huge guests lined up uh, to start off the new year. Um, but, yeah, if you have some ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so shoot us an email. Yeah, and thank you to everybody who came up to us at Waters USA as well yeah. and, uh, and talked about the podcast. Yeah. It's, uh, the feedback to both us and to our bosses and to our was bosses, much appreciated. So, <laughs> hey, guys, we can afford Christmas this year. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, Waters USA was held on Monday. Um, I don't know. For you, was there a thread, a theme, or just one interesting thing that maybe popped out? Data, 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 wasn't it? Like, data, a lot data, of it was data. about that. I mean, I guess kind of the usual stuff that we predicted, so AI, um, machine learning, uh, looking at all that good stuff, and data management, kind of, I guess, the big three topics. Mm-hmm. I think the most interesting uh, ones for me were actually... The presentation um, by Maurice Gordon at the London Stock Exchange, uh, she did a 50-minute red tech presentation for Univis that was just chock full of great stats, a really interesting take on what red tech is. And then um, there was a panel on fintech investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was kind of going into this thinking like, you know, I, I'm not so sure about this panel. It's just going to be like kind of, you know, oh, we want to partner with innovative companies. But it actually wasn't. It was really interesting. It was... Um, a bunch of guys from the, the bank investment side, whether that's um, the venture capital arms or guys in innovation units, kind of just going through like a list of all the stuff that fintech people do wrong mm-hmm. and how they should really be managing their expectations when they come to partner with like a Wells Fargo or a City or a Bank of America or like one of those big heavy hitters. Um, and about really how it's not always the right choice, I guess, for a lot of people. Um, you know, when you sign on with a bank, there are a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of operational complexities that maybe you haven't considered because all you want to do is get your seed funding and build your cool products and then maybe get your early exit if that's what you're after. But uh-huh. actually hearing it from the perspective of the people who are putting money into these people, and a lot of money as well on a daily basis, um, kind of about what they expect um, firms they come and talk to to have prepared and to be managing their expectations and everything else was, was really interesting. Yeah. So, and actually, I'll be writing up a piece on it. Maybe a short news piece, but probably something a bit longer, actually, for the next issue of Waters. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, one of the there, – there were a couple things that kind of jumped out at me. And so the one that I, I liked – the conversation I liked the most was um, Victor Anderson, um, ed- uh, uh, editor-in-chief, uh, uh, interviewed 
Kathy Bassant. Uh, Kathy Bassant uh, is the Chief Operations Technology Officer for Bank of America globally. So yep. manages just an absolutely enormous team, you know, the overseeing. What's she named? Like the uh, most powerful woman in banking? Yeah, by American, American Banker. Banker two yeah. years in a row, actually, I believe wow. it is, has named her uh, the most powerful woman in banking. Just think about that for a second as well. Like a technology person yeah. can name that. That really shows, I think, yeah. how the market has changed, right, over the last and, few years. You know, so, so I profiled her years ago. Oh, that's right. You did the cover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, again, we were always ahead of the curve. We yeah. always we see <laughs> things that... You guys can catch up to us later, but yeah, yeah. trust me, read us, and uh, you will learn about stuff that you'll be reading about a couple of years down the road. We come from the future, guys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and one of the interesting things, so Kathy has been at Bank of America for, for decades now, and their strategy there is to move se- like really promising senior executives around the organization. And before she was, before she came the chief technology officer, I think later on she had the COO role. I could be wrong about that, but I can't quite remember the profile. Um, she was chief marketing officer. And Victor asked, you know, what was a big mistake that you made that, you know, you go back on that you, you kind of change? And I really did enjoy this one discussion they were having. I think it's, it's an interesting thing from a management perspective and as there's so much disruption happening in the space. And she talked about, she came on as chief marketing officer, and what do you do? You know, new branding, new strategy, but you just, you throw out the old, let's bring in new. You know, we're going to completely redo this. And there was just so much institutionally lost by just throwing all that out, rather than with a scalpel, kind of, what did work? And rather than, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to really make my mark and have a wholesale change, let me come in with more of a scalpel, try and figure out what we do well, what is well, and then do we have to really go with a, with an aggressive overhaul? And you know, she talked about that. She had a lot of really, really good points about upper-level strategy and stuff like that uh, that she learned a long way. I like that. Yeah, I mean, we did record it. Maybe we could throw it onto a future podcast. I think it's valuable for people to listen to. Right? Yeah, well, so, I think yeah. that – so they did a video of it. Oh, they did? Um, yeah. And I think we're going to have it online somewhere at some point i could be wrong about that but if it is we'll definitely make note of it later on down the road um but that's decisions that are made you know well above our pay grade we're just the editors exactly (laughs) (laughs) um i enjoyed the conversations there was a lot about because data is so important stuff like that artificial intelligence being used to help in that process to uh you know augment what people can do serve as you know as as useful and then the challenges of just not being a hammer looking for a nail when using AI. Yeah, I think, do you get the feeling there was a slight sense of, I don't know, not weariness, but like kind of, this always happens with hype, right? You get everyone really excited about it and buzzing about it. This mm-hmm. time I felt people just like, cool, yeah, we know what it is, right? Look, what can we do with it now? How yeah. can we use it? I think well, that was the kind of... And that's what, and there was a lot of pressing on that of, you know, the real world use cases. So like um, uh, Bill Murphy was asking um, the woman from Voya, hold on, I have it. Here, uh, uh, Julia Bard Messer, and so Voy has been actively um, incorporating robotics into mm-hmm. their process and RPA, and it sounded like Bill was a little bit skeptical, and you know he was like he wasn't really on board with the whole robotics thing. That there's a lot yeah. more effort than is really the payback that you're getting, and Julie uh, Julia was you know kind of giving you know the positive spin of it, but noting that it's a very, very difficult thing. And you can't go into this thinking like, oh, it's just, we'll throw AI at it, we'll throw robotics at it, yeah. and it will work. It's not that in any way, shape, or form. And I think that 
that's the realization because they went on this process a while ago. They certainly are learning about that now. Um, you know, I put up this uh, feature uh, this week on deep learning. You know, deep learning is so machine learning is a subset of AI, and deep learning is a subset of machine learning. For those that don't know, using uh, deep neural networks, basically mimicking how the human brain uh, works. Um, you know, if you know Google's uh, face facial recognition using neural networks, uh, when you're talking to your Amazon Echo, that's involved with. NLP and, uh, and yeah. deep learning. Um, Tesla's automatic parking cars. These, these are all examples. Um, anyway, in that story, I write about a lot of experiments, small experiments, because the failure rate in this, and I think that's what people are starting to come around to, is when dealing with AI, and especially newer versions, I guess, or newer use case of it, there's a lot of failure, 80 90% failure. So you can't be dumping tons of money into these experiments. Especially the first few years, right? Yeah. Before you start getting the sophistication. you got to crawl, then walk, then run, you know? And I think that that's maybe some of the realization. So I think people were really pressing on the stage and kind of giving what were the successful, what did you learn along the way? So that was kind of the takeaway I got from the AI end of this, I guess. Yeah. and then on the cloud, I think cloud was also another big theme of just yeah. how people are using it. And more interestingly, the, the challenges of it. Um, how, you know, Amazon, you know, uh, Microsoft, and they both of them had excellent presentations of their cloud product there. But, you know, obviously they're saying, listen, come to us and spin up your cloud, give them a credit card. And you hear that a lot from end users. But when you actually get down to the nitty gritty of it, you know, creating a true data governance layer, creating something that can evolve and scale properly, um, it's a little bit, it's, it's proven to be a little bit more challenging, I guess, as more and more, as cloud becomes more prevalent in the capital markets and not just cloud, but coupling cloud providers. So I use both AWS and Google and Amazon or um, Microsoft you know, kind of creating that a, a proper ecosystem with proper data governance, it's quite challenging. Um, people are finding and that there's, there's a, a little bit of a readjustment period that we're kind of going through right now. It sounded like to me anyway from the event. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, and just overall, I think it was probably one of the more interesting conferences we've ever hosted. Oh, yeah, uh, no, no. For I sure. Was... I mean, we've slimmed down our event portfolio Briny, this year. Briny did a very, very good job. You know, very good we job. always give credit where credit Immediately got her chest infections while afterwards. So hey, exactly. She had to go home sick. <laughs> but, Welcome um, to New York in December. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, uh, you know, I think we've proved this year as well that next year, um, if you want to know what's going on in the technology and the capital markets, what is yeah. USA as a place to be? Yeah, so, no, you know. 100%. It, it, this isn't just self-aggrandizing. You know, this is. I think if you ask anybody that was at the event, that yeah. they'll tell you this was. It was a true technology conference, mm-hmm. and it worked well. And on a selfish level, it's also why I haven't responded to any of the PR emails that I've had landing in my inbox. Uh, I so, haven't responded to PR emails because I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> Eli, he loves you really, but I uh, love yeah, you. just quick shout out to John Connell, Mark Dowd, uh, <laughs> the rest of the people. Drew, of course. I'm, I'm sorry, Drew. <laughs> well, I'll get back to you eventually. Um, yeah. Um, so, what is USA's behind us? December is, you know, the code freezes start a little bit later. Um, people are getting ready for vacations or just to be quiet for a little bit. 
we understand that. Obviously, we'll be hitting some phones these couple weeks trying to make sure we get as much done as we can before like the 17th, 20th, sure. something like that. And I'm actually going to be out in London next week, so if anybody uh, wants to grab a beer, meet up. Yeah. Just shoot me an email. Yeah. Um, probably but respond yeah. to you. <laughs> if uh, you have good ideas for th- stories that haven't been covered for 2019, you know, or all yours, if your pitch is, well, let me tell you. Artificial intelligence is going to be really big in 2019. And have you heard about big data? Um, go, uh, I'm going to say it. <laughs> so you laugh, but I've actually had that pitch this week. Oh, yeah, so no. It's been, uh, are you, you getting any year-end stories? Because 2019 yeah. is going to be pretty big for this thing called AI. AI, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Cool, thanks. Blockchain? Yeah. Blockchain, the stories still wrong. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Um, so so next right. up, we have uh, Raymond Zenkic. Um, you're going to notice a change in quality. Uh, I had to do it as a phone interview, unfortunately, because I rather intelligently, was supposed to have these guys in the studio, but booked it on the same day we went to press the week before, so we had to do it a little bit later. But uh, it's an interesting conversation. Hopefully you guys get a kick out of it, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Have a good week. Hello, everyone. I am joined today by Raymond Zenkic, the President and Chief Operation Officer of Block Re. Raymond, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, James. Uh, so, Raymond, um, Block Re. Interesting kind of company, uh, interesting space you guys are in, uh, everything that's happening in crypto at the moment obviously being a hot topic. Why don't you start off with telling us a little bit about Blockery? Um, you know, when did you start? Why did you go into the space? What is it you guys do? No, well, thank you very much, James. You know, for Blockery, we've been at this for about 18 months. It's hard to believe how fast time flies, especially <laughs> in the, the world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and, and DLT technology, and especially given the the meteoric rise last year and then the coming back down to earth uh, on valuations. Um, but it's interesting since you know we started work late last spring, summertime uh, time frame last year, the, the valuations we would argue were kind of more close where they are today. Uh, and the question at the time which we looked at was, if you think about financial markets in general, um, and if you, if you believe that the crypto market is here to stay and it's going to be growing and will we'll expand beyond just cryptocurrencies and be more, uh, or will expand more to include crypto assets in general, you know, financial instruments being tokenized in the future down the road, you begin to realize that there are several pieces of infrastructure that are required. And, you know, for example, you need both the primary and secondary markets, uh, you need exchanges. You need wallet providers. You need legal. You need regulatory. Um, you also need insurance. Uh-huh. And what we felt, again, last year as we were thinking about the space, and it's only been confirmed uh, over time, is that institutions increasingly demand that their partners, that their custodians, and just think about cold or hot storage, of these assets require some level of insurance. And so if you think about exchanges where there's a lot amount, a large amount of assets currently being held, and if you're an institution or an investment fund and you ask the question, well, are you guys insured against theft or loss? Mm -hmm. And if all you get is silence on the other end of the line or in your discussion, that's a bit disconcerting. Sure. Because it highlights a couple of things, right? It highlights that, well, number one, it may just be a case of the insurance market being a bit broken mm-hmm. and that your, your counterparty in this case has doing all the right things, yet the insurance industry isn't able to provide coverage. 
Or it can be that your counterparty really doesn't have a lot of the policies, procedures, sort of operational controls in place to guarantee or to at least have you, give you a high level of assurance against theft or loss. So as we looked at the market, and we had invested a lot of time and research to understand the insurance offerings at the time, it became very clear that the insurance market or the insurance infrastructure was not being developed. And for a couple of, I would say, very valid reasons. One, the market's small. Mm-hmm. Even cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, say in the middle of the heyday were maybe over $500 billion of valuation. Now it's closer to $100, $120 billion of total market valuation. If you think about the premium market, so to say, for argument's sake, a couple of percentage points uh, for premium on that market, it's very, very small uh-huh. vis-a-vis the total assets, financial assets out there that can be insured in some way, that, you know, the trillions of dollars of assets out there. So it's a small market, and for larger insurance companies, you know, they have better things to do with their time. And so it's not a focus for any of the larger insurance companies. Uh, and any of them who are in the market, and there's a handful, we know them all very well, um, they're trying to understand the market and sort of be in the space, but for, well, with the exception of a couple, they're not aggressively pursuing the market. The other reason, and this is also a reason we founded Block Re, is that the risk is very new. You're not talking about hundreds of years of experience around vaulting uh, or even, let's say, decades of experience around E&O or D&O or, or centuries of experience around homeowners policies or even auto there's just very little data out there to support the underwriting and the actuarial work to really understand the risk. And that also presented an opportunity for a specialized firm like Block Re to go after this market. So our view is we want to be an MGA, a managing general agency, uh-huh. that is 100% focused and specialized on crypto assets. What that means for us is we need to have the right underwriting, sort of surveying tools to assess the risk. And we've spent 18 months building out a very extensive framework to do that. It starts at a very high level and covers things like technology, operations, your business, your personnel, goes out into about 18 additional categories down a level deeper. And then from there out to about 500 different data points. So it's very exhaustive. And we've been encouraged that people across the industry have been contacting us to learn more about our assessment tools and really validating what we're doing in the market to understand this risk better. We've also been focusing on loss event data. If you were to search today for crypto asset losses, you'd, you'd find at best a, uh, a mix of partially complete data sources um, not or yeah, and or data the people who are looking at it or research from a while ago and then stop. There's no real comprehensive set of data on loss events, uh-huh. and so we also have been building out that set of data to support our actuary work uh, and again get a better understanding of of pricing and almost actually underwriting. Uh, and when you so, say sorry, when you say loss events, you mean uh, primarily sort of theft and fraud and, and that kind of event, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Think of Mt. Gox, right? Early sure. on, one of the more prominent uh, examples. And there are a lot of examples, to be honest, that never make the news. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, people are embarrassed, or it's not captured in any way, like in a police report or 
any okay. kind of uh, a corporate filing. So um, the data is very, very sparse. So for us, again, coming back to sort of the main, our main thesis for Block Re is we want to provide risk mitigation for crypto assets. And to do that, we need to be, we need to have the underwriting skills, the data and tools to support the carrier discussions. And that's a primary role that we find ourselves playing today. We are translating the risk and the, the world of crypto assets into underwriting language uh -huh. for carriers to then assess the risk and feel more comfortable entering the market. Sure. And I guess uh, just as a natural follow from that, obviously, you know, the two primary uh, issues you've just said um, that have been barriers for insurers and crypto, the market being small and, and the risk is very new. I guess also there must be another factor that it's very difficult to assess, I guess, value for insurance and risk as well, right? I mean, you know, if you think about Bitcoin, for instance, last year it was $18,000 per coin. Today it's $3,900 per coin. Um, you know, as, a, as an insurance company, how do you go about kind of factoring that into your risk assessment in terms of the value of what you're insuring, I guess? Oh, great question. So it's important to say on the onset that you're not insuring any fluctuation of, or volatility of pricing, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what you're doing. Um, before I answer your question directly, I'm going to tell you that it, it was, in fact, the, the meteoric increase uh, in pricing late last year that really resulted in people to ask this question around insurance. Yeah. Because if Bitcoin is worth, you know, 10 or $20, and you have, let's say, a couple thousand Bitcoin, you think about the risk in perhaps a more casual way. Yeah. The moment Bitcoin exceeds 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, as you said, even 18,000, you now have a significant exposure. And you begin to ask questions like, who, in fact, Am I trusting my private keys with? Mm -hmm. And as I said, so the real insurance product needed in the market for a custodian is, or even for, for a retail investor, is to, a real understanding for the, the protection against a theft or a loss of a private key. And again, from our perspective, from an underwriting perspective, it's understanding, for example, cradle to grave, the life cycle of a key mm -hmm. uh, to make sure there are no threat vectors that can result in a theft or a loss event. If, for example, you have a rogue employee um, looking to do uh, something nefarious. Um, so in terms of the valuation and, and how to ensure the value of the assets, you know, insurance doesn't mark-to-market -market daily. Uh -huh. So if there are large fluctuations in pricing, there can be, there most likely can, will be moments where your coverage may exceed the value of your assets yeah. or may in fact not reach um, the coverage needed to support a full loss of that. So that's actually an area of innovation that we're looking very close at because there are some mechanisms that you can use. For example, you can uh, re essentially reevaluate or revalue your portfolio and the, and the coverages on a quarterly basis. That doesn't avoid this issue you've highlighted of you being under or overinsured during a period of time. So you know, the, the challenge for the insurance industry is can, they, can that be reduced to, say, monthly or weekly or daily, in the current state of systems and policies in the insurance world, it's very difficult to do that. And so the way it's being addressed now is you essentially have triggers and policies that say, if the value of your portfolio exceeds your limit by 
5% or 10%, um, you can either automatically or with your approval receive a higher level of coverage and there's sort of an automatic premium applied. Mm -hmm. That has to be agreed in advance. It's, It's probably less of an immediate issue if the valuation decreases and you in fact have too much insurance. Um, that's probably less of an issue for people. It's really when there's an acceleration or a massive increase in valuation, how do they make sure that their portfolio is being covered, is adequately covered? And you do it through very traditional insurance concepts of triggers mm-hmm. and uh, sort of additional premium being applied. Yeah. And I guess just um, moving away from the valuation for a second and going back to the kind of the operational points you mentioned earlier in terms of looking at how the keys are stored and what the threat vectors are and that kind of thing as well. Um, it must have been interesting from your perspective over the last 18 months to see how, I guess, the industry has changed. Um, I mean, maybe sort of two, three years ago, it's fair to say, it was very slapdash to a certain extent when it came to security and, and custodianship and everything else. And uh, mm-hmm. now as you've had, a, I guess, more of a professionalization of the cryptocurrency as an asset class, um, has it become more mature in that state? Have you seen sort of more professional solutions come into place and, I guess, tighter security, tighter custodianship? Great question. And the answer is, is yes, and I would say it, that there's still a lot to be desired and a lot to be done, mm-hmm. but you can look at large financial institutions. They have, they have teams looking at this problem for over several years now. You have certain consortium in place like R3, uh, or even Hyperledger trying to address certain issues uh, associated with the underlying technology and even sort of the... Uh, I don't want to say interoperability, but the ability for consortium and their companies to work together on some of these solutions um, and address some of these security issues together, that's happening. And I think your term of professionalizing or or an increasing level of professionalism is certainly true. Uh, You know, I mentioned for for me, uh, I I had a mining rig four years ago. Uh, You had to do a lot sort of under the hood to get things to work. Uh, And just looking at how things like cloud-based mining and um, you know even how some of these these uh, various ways that you had this big influx of ICOs and you could argue that in fact was perhaps a uh, an example of not professionalism but perhaps the opposite uh-huh. where you had people maybe taking advantage of um, a lack of understanding of investors. Yeah. So on the one hand. There has been a, an increasing level of professionalism. There's a lot of custodians who are doing a lot of the right things. Uh, you know, you have people from with you know decades of experience in industry um, trying to solve some very difficult and thorny issues around cold storage and hot storage. In the end, it's to make the technology work in such a way as that it becomes beneficial. And um, in part and parcel with that is making sure the security is there. And it's interesting. Part of the work we've done in creating our assessment tool is to realize that a lot of this is you're not starting from scratch. Mm. I mean, there there are in fact a lot of work done over decades in the in various security arenas to um, to really flesh out best practices from a security perspective. Um, you know, NIST uh, has you know, lots of standards around best practices for security. Uh, we have. We actually take our assessment framework, and we've been now meticulously going through and trying to map out standards to the various aspects of our framework to tell people that, look, there are a lot of resources out there you can be using to make your infrastructure more secure. 
Um, and that's a re- we re- we're a strong believer in that standards, as well as insurance, will ultimately lower the overall level of risk in the industry. Because the moment you have actors who are professional have the interests of their customers in mind, uh, and you start to have an insurance industry trying to provide those levels of coverage and protection, that to us we think will increase the overall uh, attractiveness of people, both retail investors and institutional investors to come into the market. Right now it still feels like a bit of the wild, wild west to some people, uh-huh. and, that's, and that's changing. And you're seeing it, I would say, first and foremost with the institutional investors. But there are large wall providers available today who weren't on the market four or five years ago, and that's an example of, I would say, the professionalism uh, in the market. And uh, I guess from your position in the market, how do you kind of keep abreast of, of how much things are changing and how quickly they are? I mean, you must have a, an advisory board or an advisory groups of you know keeping you informed of what's happening, right, and telling you which direction it's likely to go. No. Great question, and it's certainly a case where our advisory board has been tremendously helpful, um, as well as the people, uh, you know, in our in our company. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Ty Sagalo, uh-huh. uh, who is an industry veteran, a former head of underwriting from AIG, head of uh, former head of innovation at Zurich, uh, was has one of the was one of the earliest pioneers and coming up with insurance policies uh, in this space, you know, four or five years ago. And Ty has always been at the forefront of new, I would say, insurance innovation and new products. You, know, you mentioned ENO, DNO, ERISA, or even cyber. Mm. And for Ty, if he were on this, this discussion, he would say, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> and it's really when you have a new risk, with a, a market that is growing, there's an opportunity for someone like Block Re to be hyper-specialized, take a leading role in that market, and you know, write profitable business. Uh, and that's really the goal we have over the next five years, to be the leader in this space. In addition to Ty, you know, we really sought out people who knew financial markets and had very unique experience in the broader sort of blockchain space. Um, I'll mention Sandra Rowe. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sandra, who some of your listeners may recognize, uh, she was at the CME. She was our head of digitization, uh, led the, the Bitcoin futures development. And it's through discussions with her and her understanding of the market that we can really understand the institutional appetite for insurance and the need for insurance in the space. Uh, Frank Vanzilli, uh, former global CIO for Credit Suisse, I mean, we're trying to bring together a collection of people in financial services and insurance to help us really make sure we understand the market and the market needs and are developing the right set of solutions and insurance products to meet those needs. One of the the biggest challenge um, is a case where cryptocurrencies or crypto assets today are not heavily regulated. Uh There's... There's no requirement or there's no sort of analog for an FDIC-type product in the U.S. or a CIPIC-type product in the U.S., where if you are a retail customer and you have assets at a bank, say a checking account or savings account, you have some level of protection up to 250k per account. People incorrectly, I think, believe that they have those same levels of, 
of protection in some of these accounts and that's that's simply not the case so the question becomes if you're a custodian of our wall provider is you recognize the need because you also as an operating entity want to have you want to transfer some of that risk to an insurance provider but it's going to be at some cost uh-huh. and the margin structure for some of these businesses are such that even talking about 100 basis points, or in some cases 50 basis points, is almost a non-starter in an environment or in a competitive landscape where it's not a requirement, where there's no, no one telling them you have to have insurance from a legal perspective. So that's also a bit of the challenge in the market right now, is trying to find the right value proposition for the various players to uh, you know, support the, the transfer of risk around theft or loss of the private keys. Mm, sure. And just finally, I guess, Raymond, while I have you on the, the phone, um, early this month you brought out, well, I guess early last month by the time this goes live, uh, in November you brought out the your risk assessment tool. Um, do you want to talk quickly about that and what went into it and, and what its purpose is? Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. And I, and I can tell you it's been 18 months of very hard work to, uh, <laughs> to get it to where it is today. Um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, we have developed, you know, we believe the sort of the industry leading framework to assess to assess cyber asset risk. Mm-hmm. And by that we specifically mean for people who are custodying assets to really do the rigorous analysis to understand the uh, level of risk or to be able to assess the level of risk that they're taking on. And uh, one of one of my co founders uh, was at one of the world's largest custodians. So we bring sort of that operational background to this task. My background was I actually was a database architect very early in my career, as well as a software developer. Uh, I also worked with CIOs and CTOs throughout my career in industry. And we brought all that to the table, as well as uh, Ty Sagalow's underwriting expertise, to put together a framework to help exhaustively understand the risk exposure in this space. And as I mentioned, it includes things like operations, technology, sort of business and personnel, goes out to 18 deeper categories, and then from there, 500 other additional points. And, and by the way, we have a weekly update process underway, so every week it's getting refined and expanded. And as I mentioned before, what's been so exciting for us is people in industry are reaching out to us to say we need help mm-hmm. assessing risk um, that could you know and that's really to us a really big confirmation we're very proud of that fact that they're able to, to help industry in this way and as I mentioned being an MGA with a specialized skill set to be recognized in that manner it, it shows that there is an appetite for understanding the risk and that that appetite we believe is going to translate into a growing insurance market for this, again, growing asset class that will move beyond cryptocurrencies over time to include the broader set of digital assets that will be tokenized in the future. And you're not talking about tens, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars Uh of assets that need to be protected. All right, well, listen, Raymond, uh, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it and uh, for answering all my questions. And uh, all the best moving forward. James, thank you very much for our discussion.